Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I just want people to fall in love with the basics again. I want people to fall in love with what it's like to get a sentence right. Uh, I want people to know what it's like to watch the ink come out of the brush and, and lay on the page wet in the sunshine, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to make a big, you know, but what it feels like to nail a piece when you're, you know, playing the piano, when you finally get this bar, right. You know, it's, it's just that to just to fall in love with the real basics of it again, the, 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 the feeling it gives you when you're doing it and not everything around you. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Austin, welcome back to the Unmistakable Creative. It's been a while. Thank you for having me yeah, back. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. I mean, I think right before we hit record, you were saying it's been six years. I think that I <laughs> interviewed you right around the time we rebranded the show as Unmistakable Creative, and we were talking uh, about Steal Like an Artist. You've had two other books since then, Show Your Work and Keep Going. Uh, as I was saying, Keep Going is probably my absolute favorite one. Um, and I've always appreciated your rawness and you know realness about the, the creative life. But before we get into um, your work, I want to start by asking you a question which has nothing to do with it, because that's how I start interviews, as you know. Um, and that is, what religious or spiritual beliefs were you raised with, and how uh, have, did those end up impacting your life? Um, I was raised Methodist. Uh, so it was very... Um, I, I went to church every Sunday. Uh, and, you know, the Methodists are pretty chill, uh, it's, it feels a little bit like a business meeting sometimes, you know, <laughs> like, uh, uh, donuts and coffee in the parlor. Um, and so I was, uh, you know, I, I was a, um, uh, I was, a altar. Uh, it's not really an altar boy, but like, you know, I like, I was an usher, you know, I was in the choir, um, I was confirmed like in sixth grade, you know, my mom still goes to that church. Um, so I grew up with a very, like, I grew up with, um, my, my, uh, paternal grandmother is, is, is intensely, 
uh, religious. And I always felt like, you know, she's kind of my line to the big man when I was growing up. Um, I don't think of it as a big man anymore. That was just when I was growing up. Um, but, uh, (laughs) I I love that you asked this question because I literally was the other day thinking I would re I would listen to a whole podcast where they just asked this question. Like, because Mm. I feel deeply that a lot of my favorite artists either still have some sort of religious faith or practice, really a practice, um, or they've replaced that religious upbringing with art. Like Mm. a lot of my favorites, that's sort of the case. So I would probably say, uh, you know, you know, it's impossible for the stuff not to, um, uh, not to influence you in some way, but, uh, I, I'm not really a practicing Christian right now. Um, but I, uh, am, you know, that stuff sticks around. I'm deeply influenced by it. I would say I have, um, it's interesting. I, I, I have Christian friends who are able to speak about things in the culture that I'm really interested in, in a language I don't seem to have. So for example, I'm, I'm very curious in this culture, what is the role of forgiveness, whether there's any role uh, for forgiveness in this culture. And, and that is an answer that my Christian friends um, have that, you know, my, my, my atheist or agnostic or, just you know whatever friends don't have so it's interesting how it how it but i i would say the things that it deeply impacted me by and i don't mean to go so long with this but i think it's no no please talk for as long as you want you can give me 20 minute answers yeah it's something really it's something i think about all the time particularly because my father is born again and he's you know he'll call me on the phone and ask me you know you know what what are you going to say to god when you die you know, so it's like, I have to be, you know, that's, um, you know, to have the person who, you know, helped bring you into the world, ask you, well, what do you think about going to hell? You know, every once in a while is yeah. it's a pretty, it's a pretty rough thing. And I love my dad and I, I try to remain really close to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, um, it's interesting to me, you know, I, I think the thing I've noticed, my wife's Catholic. And, um, so we always joke that if we go back to church, we'll just be Episcopalian, you know, we'll just meet in the middle Methodists mm. <laughs> and Catholic. But I think like, I think the thing the church really did for me is, um, I, I just loved music so deeply, uh, when I was a kid and the music singing in the choir, I still think that singing, it's hard during the pandemic because, you know, singing is literally singing in a church choir is literally the most dangerous thing you could do right now. Um, singing projects all sorts of, you know, we know now that the droplets and stuff that that's literally the most contagious activity you can participate in is singing with a group of people. You know, unfortunately I think it's one of the most beautiful things you can do with other human beings is singing together. And so I think for me, it was, you know, the music was a big deal. Um, I met my best friend in Sunday school. We both kind of hated church and hated Sunday school. So we met, <laughs> so, you know, his mom was the Sunday school teacher. So like we like met over by the piano and like started plinking out Green Day songs. <laughs> like that's, nice. and we're still best friends, you know? So um, I think the church, you know, so it was deeply, deeply influential on me when I wow. was younger. I mean, to the point where, you know, God's funny. I, I particularly think in this age of, of, you know, uh, 
I, I think it's interesting how religion and capitalism mix. I, I have a funny story about that. When I was a kid, um, I literally prayed to God for a, a Ghostbusters proton pack for Christmas. <laughs> you know? That's how deeply, and I and I got it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you know, it, it's kind of uh, interesting. I mean, I, I love that, you know, we're talking about this and I, I love that you brought up this idea of meeting in the middle. And I think that that to me is one of the reasons I asked this question of all the ones that I could ask you, because, um, you know, we live in this very divisive kind of time. And um, I wonder, you know, as somebody who has come from faith and married outside of that same faith, how do you think we find that middle um i think that you know i think there was uh i don't know if you said i'm not a sports fan but i watched the super bowl primarily for the commercials yeah. um like i could care less about the game and i remember my favorite commercial was the one about the the jeep commercial where they specifically talked about um you know not blue states red states but you know um meeting in the middle uh and i wonder what do you think it takes and, and what role do you think art can play in that well i think that the thing about I, so this, so my thing about, I am interested in the practice of religion. I, I am interested in how religion has practices. It has rituals and routines, and it has spaces and special ceremonies and things like that. I always was attracted to that kind of stuff when I was younger. I was always... You know, there's a great book called Religion for Atheists by Elaine de Botton, um, and he um, he talks about this. You know, the thing he says that I love, <laughs> it's so blasphemous, but like, you know, to him, he said the least interesting thing about a religion to him is whether it's true. He's yeah. <laughs> like, it's everything else that's so interesting. And for me, I mean, um, and this is what's hard, you know, when I try to connect with my father, he... He is that brand of evangelical that that cannot get over. Uh, he, if you don't believe, there's no point to anything. So, like you know, when I'm talking to him, I'm kind of chuckling to myself because I know he sits down every morning with his Bible and reads and works in a notebook. I mean, he has a daily devotional just like I do. We do the same thing every morning. We commune, we read, we sort of think about how we want our day to go. You know, I just don't pray to, you, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm just yeah. not, it's just, we do the same practice. I just don't have a belief, uh, a, a really strong belief about it. I have always felt that belief would come through practice rather than you believe and then you practice. Now, this is, this isn't, this is my own, this is just my own life I'm talking about, but it, it impacts me. I mean, that is exactly how I feel about art because there are a lot of people out there that tell you, well, if you just believe you're an artist, then you can sit down and make art. You have to give yourself permission to whatever. For me, I'm like, no, you, you start the doing, you do the verb first, you practice yeah. And then you will become, eventually someone else will call you an artist. It's none of your business whether you're an artist or not. Someone else will decide that for you. What is important is the practice. And I know that Seth just had that book come out, so which I unfortunately haven't got time to read yet. But I have, for me, what attracts me to religion is the practice, having something to do. The great religions give us things to do. And for me, that is what life is about. It is about, you know, and, and again, this, this is, this is somewhere where 
the, the thing about meeting in the middle is it requires both parties <laughs> to extend. Yeah. You know? And if you have one party that is just like completely incurious about the other party, uh, then there's no chance of meeting in the middle. And I think that's where you see, I mean, that's what you see in, in, in the culture right now is there's really just a basic incuriosity about the other side. Uh, and, and then there's no, there's no meeting in the middle, you know, cause, yeah. cause, cause you can't, you can't meet in the middle when it's just one side trying to meet there. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. You can't so, build a bridge over, uh, you know, without it coming from both sides of the chasm. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps to detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A lot can happen in 3 years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. 
So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Mm. So I want to come back to this, but um, you mentioned this idea of art, and um, this was one of my favorite quotes from the book. Uh, you said, you know, if you wait for someone to give you a job title before you do the work, you might never get to do the work at all. You can't wait around for someone to call you an artist before you'll make art. You'll never make it. And I think the the reason that struck me is because I see so many people who are just sitting and waiting. I mean, hell, even you and I were talking before we hit record about how, you know, I got the two book deal with the publisher. And, you know, once the contract was up, I sat around sending, you know, book proposals waiting in the words of Seth Godin to be picked. And ironically, the reason I got that book deal was because I didn't sit around waiting to be picked. So what do you think it is that causes people to sit around waiting? Like, what the hell are they waiting for? I don't know. I mean, I kind of waited too. I mean, you know, the thing was, it's like, I sort of waited for someone to pick me, but I was putting things into the world as invitations. You know what I mean? I mean, there was a certain element of, I was waiting for that editor to call. I I was always bad about that in my early, I still am, you know, I'm still like, what am I waiting on? In a sense, I think the difference is, is that it's one thing to wait, but, you know, waiting without the work is... (laughs) Yeah, that's what I see is I just see a lot of people like waiting to work, not yeah. waiting to get picked. I mean, they're really waiting to work. Um, mm-hmm. And and you just have to do the work that you think needs to be done. I mean, I, I you know, you got to do the job that you want. Um, mm-hmm. You have to invent it in a sense, you know, and, yeah. and I, but I, I think, I always think punk rock helps with all this stuff. I think having a little bit of a, um, a, uh, being in touch with that kind of DIY spirit of the, you know, eighties and nineties, uh, or even the late seventies, the kind of punk aesthetic of, um, you know, I think every artist should read like Michael, uh, Azrad's book, um, our band could be your life. You know, I think you should read about artists who literally there was no scene happening and they just made it happen. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that that's a fundamentally American thing, I think, is to, to, to be in the middle of nowhere and to hit the road and, you know, that kind of thing. I, I've always been really influenced by the kind of do-it-yourself ethic of, of punk and, and not thinking of punk as a style, but as a real way of being, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I always think that helps, and I think every generation sort of needs to rediscover punk because <laughs> because its roots go deep you know it goes beyond the the 70s that idea of like we're just going to do it ourselves um yeah. but i i don't know i mean it's it's i guess it's i think in some ways um and i could be wrong about this but i think a lot of it has to do with school to be honest i mean you know student of the month mm-hmm. uh Hey, here's our straight A's. You, you know, I mean, like we're we're conditioned at a very early age that there are authorities that grant us privileges and rewards, and that happens at a very early age. You know, yeah. my kids, for example, for through a variety of reasons, um, you know, haven't been to school like much at all. Really, like my youngest has been to preschool for a little bit. And like my oldest is maybe done a year of public school. Um, Could like between like us homeschooling and the pandemic. Um, And they just don't, they don't wait around for me to tell them whether they can do anything, you know, like they're just like, well, maybe I'll do this. I could do that. 
you know, you know, like maybe I'll make my own animated show or maybe I'll, you know, they just don't have that, whatever it is. And I don't know if that's just because I've been encouraging of them or they see me working all the time, but they're not waiting around for the title, you know, but I do think that, you know, I was talking to my, uh, I was talking to teacher and look, I love, I love teachers. I don't like school. You know, that's, Mm. that's a distinctive, let me say that right away. I love teachers. I don't like school. I I love teachers. I don't like the systems they work in. Um, and uh, you know, like almost every teacher I meet is, has a, you know, has infinite patience and a good art, you know, at least the ones I meet. But, um, you know, I was talking to the teacher that my son, Owen was going to have for second grade, I think. And um, it's hard to remember what grade they're in because of the pandemic. But she said to me, so is Owen more of a STEM kid or is he more of an arts kid? And I was just like, he's eight years old. Wow. What in the hell? Like, why do we do this? It's hard for me, you know, to to even, I mean, we just speak, you know, teachers are trained to speak these languages now through i mean it's so embedded and part of the problem is is that you know a lot of young teachers now you know they went to school and then they became a teacher so it's just like they speak the language of school like school is really the school teaches you about school you know and so that that's sort of what happens in school is like you you be, you you get better at school <laughs> by going to school so you know i I just think a lot of this happens through school and in conditioning and then you know you get put in the marketplace where someone has to you know pick you for a job and and that kind of thing so you know the 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 beauty the beautiful thing about art i think and you know of course there are issues of power and access and 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 things like that but at the end of the day i do think people have a pretty good shot uh, as far as, you know, if you do amazing stuff, somebody's going to mm-hmm. notice. Um, yeah, there, there's so many layers to this, this whole discussion on school. And, and so, uh, you know, I will ask you a question that I tend to ask college <laughs> professors, and I know you're not an educator, but I think from your perspective, I'd be really curious. So, you know, I, I agree. I think my teachers were phenomenal. I was the beneficiary of extraordinary music teachers in Texas who gave me, you know, the skills to practice. They taught me what discipline meant. They made me better than I ever would have been at anything. Um, and so I wonder, you know, based on, on our discussion here, if you were given the task of redesigning the system from the ground up, <laughs> what would you do? How would you restructure oh, it? I would turn, um, I would probably make things look more like a library. Um, I, I, I think, you know, libraries are a terrific anecdote anecdote uh, anecdote not an anecdote an antidote to schools i think that libraries um because of their emphasis on all ages uh lifelong education and resources um if you walk into a public library i mean it makes me i'm getting a little weepy talking about it because i haven't been in a library for a year but in in the before times when you would walk into a good public library, there were people of all, just everybody, just, you know, there were homeless guys off the street. There were moms with strollers. There were elderly people learning about computers. 
I, I, I mean, it, really the whole kind of spread of the community was there. And I think, you know, libraries, because they are there for the libraries do a lot of education, but it has to be asked for, you know, it's people that are looking for the material or looking for the skills. So I would actually make schools look more like libraries where, you know, it's kind of like you come there and there's a buffet, <laughs> you know, and there are people there, uh, there's programming and there's access, you know, it might look like, I, I suppose in some ways when you look at free schools, they kind of look a little bit more like that. Um, but yeah. you know, for me, it would be more about self-direction. Um, it would be more about uh, community based stuff, like getting people immediately. I think young people in particular need to see real people in the world working as early as possible. I think that, you know, I think apprenticeships are, are, are so important. I mean, I was so lucky when I was in school. I, I sort of had this basically office gopher job in high school for an attorney that my dad knew. It was just wonderful because I immediately realized I didn't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> and I was just so, I, I was thinking about it. I was like, man, I'll bet there's people who go to law school who have literally never stepped in front of a law office. Like I, I'm mm -hmm. sure there are people, you know what I mean? So it's just like, I don't know. My vision for America is better libraries. I, I really, I believe deeply in the library because I think it's the last democratic institution that really operates the way it needs to be operating. I really think that, and they're so strapped. I mean, they really are the la one of the last resources for a lot of communities. So I would like to, and, and, and I, I should say that I, when I'm thinking about the home I'm creating for my children, um, I think it's very, a lot of dads I talk to, they, they speak as teachers. They're like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to teach them to ride a bike. And I'm going to teach them to throw a football and I'm going to do this I'm gonna do that. You know, I'm going to teach them all these things, you know. Uh, and there's like a million songs about dads who are going to all the, you know, stuff they're going to teach their children or whatever. And I have always felt uh, the opposite. I have felt very much like, well, I will create a space for them to learn in, but I'm not sure I really have that much to teach them. Um, and so I've always felt like I was more of a librarian for my kids. Um, I create a world in which they can be safe and explore their interests. Um, I fill the house with a lot of materials like books and, uh, you know, kind of curated DVDs and <laughs> iPads and, you know, musical instruments and stuff like that. And then we have some programming, <laughs> <laughs> field trips and whatnot. But, but on the whole, I think of myself as a librarian in which my kids come to me with their interests and I use my very limited skills in putting <laughs> them in, you know, I, 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 I put them in touch with the materials they need and then yeah. they sort of do it. So libraries, I mean, I should, I should note that my first job out of college was working in a public library and I think it shaped my, um, it shaped me profoundly at the time I didn't realize how important it was. And it really had a profound effect on my life to, to, to the point where, 
you know, I started out in life wanting to be a teacher. And now I, I think of myself more as a librarian. Mm, amazing. So um, before we start diving uh, deep into Keep Going, um, I wanted to ask you a question that was uh, came up for me earlier in our conversation. You said you've had this best friend that you have known, you know, since Sunday school when you were kids. Um, you know, we had uh, Lydia Denworth who wrote this beautiful book uh, on the psychology of friendship here, hands down, probably one of my favorite books I read last year. Uh, what is it? that allows a friendship to sustain for that long? Because I think, you know, one thing I saw in my adult life is people moved away. You know, we were all in different chapters of our lives. Like my friends were married, honestly, like as a stud guy who's still single, you know, some of them are great, but you know, I don't get invited on, you know, weekend trips with right. couples anymore because, you know, it'd be awkward. But I wonder, you know, what is it that allows a friendship to sustain for that long? Or what's allowed your friendship to last for that long? I think shared experience. I just think, you know, shared formative experiences as a young person, just, you just, it's, it forms shared experience. And at a young age, in, in my opinion, it, it forms a bond that can be picked up at any time. I mean, when I'm, when I'm around my friends that I made, you know, before the age of 20, um, I find that we can sort of pick things up in a way that it just doesn't, it's like we're right back there. No. Um, and this is with my very close friends. I mean, some of those friendships, of course, the ones that, the ones that seem to stick around are the ones that can be, it's almost like a video game save game or something. <laughs> you, know, you just load yeah. it up, you know, and you're right there where you left off. Um, I, I feel, I also think there is just something so deeply bonding about hating your surroundings and finding <laughs> someone else that hates it as much as you do. I mean, my buddy Corey and I, I mean, we hated where we grew up. I mean, we just hated it. And music was, I mean, we were just like, we can be rock stars. We can get out of here. You know, like we can just get out of here. Uh, mm -hmm. or at least that was my end of it. I, at least yeah. I thought here's somebody who hates it as much as, as I do. Uh, I think yeah. the, the truth is, is that he didn't, he didn't hate it as much as I did. And he was sort of, you know, but, but didn't, so didn't go quite as far. I mean, I grew up in Ohio, so I'm far from home. <laughs> I might as well be, be on Mars really. Um, yeah. but, uh, but you know, and, and I think about that in college, like some of my really great friends in college just, you know, hated the main campus experience <laughs> and thought that our other students were just morons. You know, I mean, we just hated everybody and I feel like we had a gang, you know, and, and that unity, I think a lot about gangs. I don't, I don't know a lot about gangs, but I just feel like when I roll around with my crew, uh, maybe crew is the right word. I like how rappers use that term crew. <laughs> I mean, I just feel like I'm in a gang when I'm with my kids. I mean, when we, when my wife and I and our kids, we were like walking around the neighborhood. I just feel like we're a bunch, you know, like a, yeah. like a real crew. And I think, you know, if you were going to let me lie down on the couch, which what is a podcast episode, but that, um, I would say that, I've always just been desperately searching for people who cared about the same things that I did because I grew up in an area that didn't. I mean, mm -hmm. I grew up in rural America and, 
you know, I've always felt this isn't fair as a heterosexual white man for me to say this, but you know, my gay friends, I always really felt really close to them because, you know, I mean, <laughs> they use the same words for you if you like music and you like the dance at, or whether you like the same sex, you know, I mean, it's all the mm -hmm. same to them. You're different. Yeah. Uh, difference is difference in this, in these areas. I do think it's gotten better weirdly. Like I go back home now and I just don't, I think the culture's changed a lot, but you know, growing up in the eighties, it's <laughs> wasn't the most yeah. enlightened uh, time to be living in rural America. But um, oh, I, I can relate. I grew up know? in a small Texas town. So. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, and I think that that's a bond that you find. I mean, my my buddy who's from small town Ohio and lives in L.A. now, I mean, he he says, you know, if you're from small town Ohio and you got out and you work in the arts, like we're going to be friends. Uh -oh. <laughs> there's a there's a deep there's something about, you know, you meet people who sort of got out. But there's also a great, a great Patton Oswalt routine. Um, you know, Patton Oswalt had this routine called Sterling, Virginia. Then he just talked about how much he hated his small town. He's like, you know, just just is despising this existence. And later he did a routine where he basically said, you know what? Maybe I was the crazy one because I get on Facebook and all these people are happy. They've got, you know they've got kids and their grandparents are around and like, whatever, maybe I'm the misfit. Maybe I was the one that, you know, yeah, good. Get out of here, man. <laughs> you know? And I thought that was such a, I love that when artists revisit previous work mm -hmm. and they say, you know what? That was really funny when I said that, but it's not the whole truth. I mean, I'm just like, I'm delighted by that, that, that self, like that correction in a sense. You know, I, I appreciate that more than you can possibly imagine, because I think that, you know, as, as weird as it is, you know, I, in some way, I feel like the work that people like you and I do, the work that people like Chris Gilbo and Tim Ferriss do, we, you know, to some degree, plant seeds of dissatisfaction in people's lives where there aren't any, you know, right. it's yeah. kind of like, who's to say, you know, that living in the Midwest, raising a family and working a nine to five job isn't a good life. Like I, you know, I've been working on the self-published book and I, I'm, you know, I have a section called a good enough life. And, you know, I, I think that for the longest time, I felt like, wow, the people in, in these circles that teach us of, it's almost like we have this elitist attitude that we're superior to people who don't choose to pursue, you know, this sort of passion driven quest in their life. And yes, it, you know, and I think with age, that's kind of just dawned on me as no, this is not accurate. There are multiple ways to live a, a great life. Well, and it's an enormous privilege to be able to live off your passion. I mean, it really, um, it really uh, turns to speak in that language is to really, you know, is to, minimize the um to to sort of minimize the challenges of so many people who are who are you know who who are barely scraping by i mean mm. this is this is a privileged thing to talk about i mean that's why i've just i am just trying hard to push people to realize that you know creative work keeps you alive it it you know it it it's supposed to make life worth living, not make life harder. You, you know what I mean? I mean, it's just so, mm -hmm. 
there was a great, oh, I read this interview with Adam Phillips, the psychologist one time, and he just said, you know, the, the tragedy of art is that so many people come to it out of pain and they really would have been much better off doing something else. Like art seems like something that all, you, you know, they're, they're really suffering from something else and they think that art's going to fix it. And really it just makes it worse is basically right. what he's saying. And I look around, I see a lot of people who are like whipping themselves, trying to become what they think is like a great artist or whatever. And I just want people to fall in love with the basics again. I want people to fall in love with what it's like to get a sentence right. Uh, I want people to know what it's like to watch the ink come out of the brush and, and lay on the page wet in the sunshine. You know, I mean, I'm not trying to make a big, you know, but what it feels like to nail a piece when you're, you know, playing the piano, when you finally get this bar right, you know, it's, it's just that to just to fall in love with the real basics of it again, the, the, the feeling it gives you when you're doing it and not everything around you, you know? Um. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hold up. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, yeah, it's so it's I, I love this because, you know, I mean, my second book um, was called An Audience of One, Reclaiming Creativity for Its Own Sake. And, yes. you know, I think for Which the weeks a great title, I mean, I love afterwards, that title. <laughs> well, I'll be sure to send you a copy. Um, <laughs> I, you know, for the weeks and months after, of course, I was really, really stressed about book sales. And I mean, I can't tell you how many times in an interview I've said, yes, I, you know, I, I wrote this message, but I'm sure as my publisher would be a lot happier if it was reaching an audience of millions. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm missing the point of my own yes. damn book here. Yes. Um, and it took me a long time to get back to that. Like, I remember I wrote this collection of essays called The Scenic Route, which is probably the least read thing I've ever written. Um, <laughs> and one of somebody who had interviewed me read that. And he said, I loved this. And I said, yeah, I actually didn't do that for anybody. I wrote it for myself. Um, and it was probably the most fun I've had in a long time working on a writing project. Cause I mean, that was the first time in probably three and a half years that I had had a project that I, you know, nobody was going to pay me for. Um, I wasn't under any contract for it and it really changed how, you know, I showed up. But, um, one thing, you know, before we, we start diving into this whole creative thing, I do want to ask you one thing about your friendships and part of the reason I think this is on my mind is, you know, one, we just had Mitch Princeton here who wrote a, a book called, um, the power of uh, likability in a status obsessed world. And he has this section at the end where he talks about the seven stages of status elevation and how you go from being sort of, you know, lingering in obscurity where nobody knows you to suddenly like all these people know you. And yet it's such a hard task to distinguish, like who is there because of, you know, Austin Cleon, the author of steel, like an artist and who's there because of Austin, the kid in Sunday school, who was my best friend. What has that experience been like for you? Because I find, you know, that that has often been something that I've struggled with. I'm like, okay, do people really know me or do they know the character that I've created online? Well, this is why I just think pseudonyms are so powerful. Mm -hmm. And I love like, you know, like whatever Lady Gaga's name is. <laughs> I don't know her name, but, you know, yeah. it's got to be helpful for her to say, well, I'm not Lady Gaga. You know, Cary Grant used to say, everybody wants to be Cary Grant. Even I want to be Cary Grant. <laughs> you know? Or yeah. like, you know, it's, you know, or Bob Dylan used to say, you know, it's Halloween. It's a good thing I got my Bob Dylan mask on. You know, I mean, like these people knew like what they were, you know, like the Austin Cleon that most people know is just me. Like, it's like a version of me. It's like a very helpful, uh, up to like, like happy, helpful version of me, you know? Um, I mean, my friends think it's hilarious that I've written these books because they know me. <laughs> as this, I mean, you know, like they know me as this deeply like 
kind of curmudgeonly. <laughs> I've always been kind of a grumpy, <laughs> you know, I've always been kind of a grumpy old guy, even when I was 19. I mean, you know, and so uh, my friends think it's hilarious, but, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm trying to be, that's why I think, you know, I don't think it's inauthentic. I think it's me attempting to, you know, I mean, we started the conversation talking about religion. I mean, redemption. There are so many things that, you know, Christianity offers that like kind of aren't on sale or available in a secular world like redemption or or forgiveness, you know, that kind of thing. I, I think that, you know, in some ways in my books, I'm sort of trying to redeem myself. I, I'm trying to, you know, I am trying to help people. I mean, day to day, I don't really care what happens to, to most of the place. You, know, I mean, like, you know, like most of the, you know, like, I mean, most of the, you know, I mean, on a day to day basis, I'm, I'm sort of like, I mean, there's a great peanuts, you know, there's a great peanuts panel you know, where Linus says, you know, I love mankind. It's the people I can't stand. Yeah. <laughs> it's that kind of, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, everyone, everyone quotes that Martin Luther King line, you know, human salvation lies in the hands of the creatively maladjusted. If you go back and read it, though, I mean, what he's really talking about is that, you know, maladjustment in a rotten world is, 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 um, I mean, it's natural. It's natural to be maladjusted to a rotten world, to a world mm -hmm. in which there are injustices and stuff like that. So, I mean, what he's saying is, and I think what he was really talking about is, you know, to be creative, to imagine something new or different takes a sort of distaste or something has to be wrong. Something has to be missing. If you were perfectly happy, so for example, if you're perfectly happy with going to homecoming and playing football and you know the way that small town American life plays out, then you don't imagine anything different, you know, you know what I mean? So, so it's like mm -hmm. the thing we talked about earlier, maladjustment, it's very hard to be creative without that maladjustment to, you know, to not see that there are things in life that could be improved because, and I just think this is such basic information that everyone forgets about. Like it, sometimes you just like have to strip things down to a very basic level. If you think the world is perfect, then why would you ever make anything of it? There wouldn't be, yeah. you know, there wouldn't be any reason to make anything, right? And so I think that, you know, I have always felt in my work, and I've been trying to write a little bit more about this to get people to understand this. I'm helpful and kind in my work, but that comes from this place of deep disgust. Of deep, <laughs> I mean, just not a hatred because hatred's yeah. wasted energy, a disgust with civilization, just a, a disgust with, I mean, just a, just a, an itching, an agitation, you know, just a, 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 a itchiness against what is, you know, the norm or whatever. Like that's where mm -hmm. the work comes from.
And like, I think that's very personal to me. But when I look at some of my favorite artists, which of course are the ones that speak to me and therefore would be the most like me, probably, you know, this stuff that this beautiful stuff, this beautiful life affirming stuff comes out of a deep pit of disgust. And there is a redemption there. There is a redeeming of, there is a, a taking in and, and putting out of, you know, you, you sort of become like a refinery somehow. You're taking in this stuff that's like bothering you and you're transforming it into something, you know? Um, and it's so powerful. And it's, it's so much what I wish people would think more about. I mean, we're just so like, I don't know. You're in this, you know, you're in this world. It just, everyone's like happy go, Oh, you know, be create. Here's your, get out your paints. And you know, and it's like, think of something that's deeply wrong and try to correct it, you know, fix. And that's as simple as take a pair of jeans that are ripped and sew them back together. Like that is a creative act. And and I guess this is another thing that I was thinking deeply about with keep going is just everything in the culture right now, as far as creativity is, is sort of pitched at us as vandalism. Like if you think about like the big tech companies, they all have these slogans. They're just about like, make your mark, put a dent in the universe, you know, move fast and break things. It's all just dudes messing stuff up. It's like vandalism metaphors, right? (laughs) And so I just, I was just like, I've just been so deeply influenced by like, um, you know, like quilters. Like I find quilting to be just this incredible art form where you're taking these discarded scraps and you're transforming them into these beautiful what I think are works of art that also have a function and that they could keep someone warm. So if you look at the, like, you know, I'm looking at someone like Rosie Lee Tompkins or anyone in that, you know, Guy's Bend uh, area that does those quilts. That to me is like such a wonderful, wonderful, um, you know, kind of opposition to this make your mark. (laughs) thing you know and the way those women and they're mostly women talk about listening to their materials and letting the quilt become what it wants to be um i find that to be so just it's freedom because listening to men talk about wrangling the canvas into you know oh i'm projecting my you know that i think you know sometimes it's interesting because I I think a lot of men, when they, you know, when they think about feminism or they think about looking at the work of women or, or, or whatever it is, I think they think that something's going to be taken away from them somehow. But for me, you know, it's just a completely opposite way of thinking. It's just, it's just opened my life up so much to, you know, to look at art forms like quilting or, or something like that, where, you know, even the art world might say something more like, well, that's craft. That's not art. You know, it's just opened me up so much. It's just like, there's so much, there's so many more possibilities for work then. Cause if, cause if you're just like, well, what mark can I make on the world? Like that's, that's one way of doing it. But if you do other things, like I start looking at the world and I'm like, 
well, where are the gaps? Where are the things that have been torn? What, what could, where are the patches that I could, you know, like yeah. where are the holes? Where's the effort that needs done? Where are the things that need connecting that no one's connected yet? Like, what's the quilt I could spin out of this? You know, that's just like a profoundly different, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, as a writer, I take language so seriously. And I just think the metaphors that we serve up in this culture, I mean, one thing I would recommend to people is spend a week just paying attention to metaphor. Just spend a week just paying attention to how people talk about stuff like the war of art or the battle of creativity. Like, just think about like all the military terms people use to talk about art and creative work. And then think about what the opposite metaphor would be and ask yourself if it opens you up more. Because I just, you know, there, there's a book called Metaphors We Live By. And, yep, on my shelf. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's a I hard actually, read. I haven't actually read it. <laughs> yeah, me either. I, I tried. <laughs> yeah, I've tried. Not, I've tried like four times. Yeah. It's like one of those books, but, you know, we do. We, we invent our metaphors and then they invent us. You know, it's like, what McLuhan said about tools is it's like we invent our tools and then they invent us. And so I encourage particularly the men listening, you know, to think deeply about the kind of metaphors you've been given for work and life and think about what the opposite might be because my reading of feminism, I don't even know why I brought this up. It's just, to me, it's a, it's a complete reordering of the world. It's not about, you know, it's not about women taking over or having equal power or anything like that. It's literally a restructuring of our, of our culture. And I find that as a, as a creative person, finding these other models of thinking, these other metaphors, it's just like, it's just changed my life. You know, it just makes life more interesting and and opens up possibility. It's, it's funny you brought that up of all things, because I remember, um, I don't know if you've seen it. There's a documentary on Netflix, uh, that Oliver Stone did called the untold history of the United States. Mm. And the very final one, he, you know, basically quotes a conversation that he was having with some woman. And she says to him, we need to feminize the planet. And <laughs> he goes on to expand. I mean, he, he, you know, he, in a lot of ways he said, you know, what you just did, um, and, you know, that struck me so much when when he said that, because it was just like, wow, there's a, a great deal of truth. I, I love the fact that you talked about vandalism as metaphors, because I remember, I you know, in this new self-published book, I actually started, you know, writing a section called Move Slow and Fix Things yeah, instead of. Right. It, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Move slow and fix things. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that. um one thing in particular that really struck me is is the way that you opened the book by talking about the sort of Groundhog Day uh, <laughs> metaphor. Because I I had a friend, you know, that at the CrossFit gym that I used to work out at when I lived in San Diego, and uh, he would call me Hank Moody. I don't know if you've seen uh, the TV show Californication, um, but you know David Duchovny is this you know really brilliant writer who basically goes around LA sleeping with every hot woman who you know he runs into in a bar, driving a Porsche, having these like crazy <laughs> adventures. And I would tell him, Travis, my life is nowhere as near as interesting <laughs> as Hank Moody's. And I don't think any writer's life would be that interesting. In fact, I think if you made a movie about most people's writing life, it would be like, here's Srini sitting at a desk. That would be it. Oh, my um, God. Yeah. So and you you say that I, yeah. you know, the creative journey is not one in which you're crowned the triumphant hero and live happily ever after. The creative journey is one in which you wake up every day like Phil referring to Groundhog Day <laughs> with more work to do. 
And I, I, you know, so outside of the the perception of the artistic life that media creates, why do people have this sort of glamorous vision of what this could be? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I tried watching Dickinson, the the sort of you know this kind of like I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, it's it's so offensive to me. I, I finally, the thing that broke me about trying to watch that show was I was just like, it seemed to the things I've read about Emily Dickinson, it's like her domestic life and her poetics were like deeply interwoven. I mean, like she would scribble poems on the back of like envelopes and and like scrap pieces of paper and stuff and in the show it's like she's always trying to get away from the domestic life and i just i think it's such a betrayal of what i sort of see i mean i know they're trying to make her into like this icon in that in that show but and i haven't gotten very far in the show but it was just so against what i had like sort of read about emily dickinson that i just in her like uh, I just it just ruined it for me, and I and I'm fascinated by the depiction of of writers in 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 um in media, but I don't know where people get this idea that writing is like a fun. I, I don't I don't know. I mean, most of the writers I know are just nerds, you know. I mean, just like uh, particularly like I mean, I spent a lot of time around cartoonists uh, when I was coming up now, there's a bunch of freaks. I mean, you know, you know, some cartoonists, I mean, they are, I mean, freaks, anyone who would pick an art form that is that labor intensive that takes, I mean, you know, a cartoon takes so many hours to produce and takes almost no time to read. You know, it's so like, it's so labor intensive. Um, but you know, the Groundhog Day thing for me was really less about the glamour and more about the it, it, it was less about the glamour of the writing life and more about the repetition of the life. Mm. I think that's the thing that people really I think people can sort of get it through their head that writing's hard and that it's not necessarily glamorous. What they really can't get through their heads is how every single freaking time you sit down to write a book. It is a new, you just have to learn again. It, mm -hmm. I mean, so many of the people I, I know, unless, you know, they're a robot like Ryan Holiday, who's a friend of mine. <laughs> Likewise. You know, um, you know, unless you just have this like extremely disciplined routine in which you have the system for cranking out books. No. I mean, you know, most of the writers I really, really admire deeply who wrote the work I did, they just talk about it as like every book is like a new, you just have to figure it out every time. Yeah. Um, and that, that sense of return, that, that idea that you're back, that it loops, you know, but the thing about Phil is like every time it's a new, it's a new thing, but he does accumulate experience. You know, I mean, he, in the movie, he has things to rely on, even though he faces the same thing every day. You know, he does build up a, 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 a skill and a wisdom over time. And I think that's what the writer has. And when I sit down to write a new book, I, I realize, like, I'm going to have to go through all the horrible things I usually go through when I'm writing a book. Uh, but the thing is, is that I've been there before. And so I know... When I'm having a terrible day, if I just get to the end of it, the, the next day will be better. And just that little bit of knowledge, 
lets me keep going when, you know, someone just starting out would have a harder time. Mm-hmm. And, so, yeah. sorry, keep going. Is there anything else you wanted to add to that? I, well, I, yeah. So just that loop. I mean, for me, I just thought that life, when I was younger, I thought life would be a straight line. You know, it was just like, I would just accumulate wealth and power and fame, <laughs> whatever it was, you just, and you know, both. whatever it was, you know, it was just like going to be a straight line. And, and it just feels more looping to me now. Like I'm stuck in loops that I orbit the planet. You know, I orbit the sun along with the earth. And on each rotation, there are too many echoes. And and it, I think, you know, for me, a lot of it's been, people make fun of middle-aged white guys who read Thoreau, mostly because they take the wrong things from Thoreau. Like, you know, if you, if the message you get from Thoreau is like, I should go live in the woods by myself, like you're an idiot. Like, I mean, (laughs) you, you really don't understand like you haven't got it because to me what reading Thoreau has done for me is to pay deep attention to the rhythms of life and the seasons and to take lots of walks and look at the world and come back and write about it that that is what I take from Thoreau and um I think reading his work walking every day in my neighborhood and keeping a diary has put me in touch with the sort of circular rhythms of life um, more than, you know, anything else. And I do think because I've been a parent for eight years, parents sort of, there's a certain amount of brain damage that comes from having young children where you're just (laughs) kind of like, I mean, it's just, you have a kind of amnesia and it's evolutionary. It's, it's, Literally, if you knew how terrible you felt when you had a newborn, you wouldn't have any more kids. Like if you could remember, people wouldn't keep having kids if they remember, you know, I mean, if they had the choice, you know, but like if you, I mean, for me, it's like there was a certain amount of amnesia. But with my second kid, I was like, wait a minute, fool me twice. No, I'm just kidding. You know, but it's, there was a sense of, I've noticed this even in my family life where it's like, I can recognize patterns now because I've noticed them and written them down in my diary. And I think that, you know, people talk about how boring their diary. Is. Oh, I don't, I don't know. I tried to keep a diary for a while, but it was so boring or whatever. And I was like, well, what do you think it's supposed to be dummy? Like it's supposed to be boring because it, it shows you what your life actually is. You know, like your life is mainly mundane you know, it is ma- like, that is what life is, is it's mainly mundane. But if you do it long enough, you start noticing your own patterns and then some sort of wisdom comes out of that, you know, or the opposite where you realize that like, this is just the loop you go through and you'll go through it again. And it's just the passage of time. You know, you know, you yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but I, yeah. I just feel deeply that, that learning more about learning more about nature, learning more about seasons and cycles and uh, the idea of sort of a natural time versus man-made time. It's just really opened up, you know, how I think about creative work now. It, it feels, it feels like so much of what we do is fighting our own natural impulses, mm-hmm. you know? Well, I think that makes a, a perfect segue to talking about um, sort of where I want to wrap things up, um, money and metrics. Um, I think mm. that 
You know, I, like I told you before we hit record, there was one quote that stayed with me from Steel Like an Artist that honestly, like that has kind of been the compass for how I choose to do what I do. And that was hearts over eyeballs. But you and keep going, say we used to have hobbies. Now we have side hustles. Everyone who's turned their passion into their breadwinning knows this is dangerous territory. One of the easiest ways to hate something you love is to turn it into your job taking the thing that keeps you alive spiritually and turning it into the thing that keeps you alive. Literally, you must be mindful of what potential impact monetizing your passions could have on your life. You might find that you're better off with a day job, which is kind of funny because it kind of brings us full circle to something we were talking about earlier. Um, and, you know, I, I think people understand that. And yet how many books how many self-help gurus, I mean, hell, how many podcasters will go out and tell you the exact opposite? I mean, you know, Chris Gillibo has an entire conference dedicated to the opposite of this message. Yeah. Um, Chris doesn't pay people, by the way. I know <laughs> that. Speak of that conference, which I think is hilarious. I, I've never spoken at it. So. Um, no, he's he's literally built a Chris. he's built a cult as far as <laughs> yeah, I'm concerned. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, um, I asked him about this. I said, you know, you seem to have an implicit understanding of cult psychology because literally somebody <laughs> compared WDS like when they went, they said it felt like a cult, and I was like, yeah, that's because there are definitely elements of it. Oh God. Um, <laughs> good night, folks. Um, oh my goodness. Uh I I I forget what the question was. <laughs> Not a question as much as an observation, you know, but I don't the think thing I've is, laughed so much in a podcast, which is a really good sign for me. <laughs> well, the thing is, I think that this has really been on my mind lately because I'm writing a book that's literally titled "Not Another Damn Self Help Book," um, and um, and it, a lot of it is questioning what comes out of this sort of personal development ecosystem because yeah. you know you know thousand interviews you know hundreds of people i've talked to over the years i realize all of this messaging completely ignores context yes here's what i would tell people about self-help and self-help writers suspicion is always great <laughs> yes <laughs> agreed the, the other thing i would say though in zen Buddhism and in there are a bunch of like, like John Cage has a lot of really good stories about like Zen masters and stuff. Read the great stories about Zen masters because the best teachers are the reluctant ones. Like the people you want to listen to and learn from are not the people advertising their teachings. Like, like, <laughs> like, um, I am really suspicious now. There are people in the culture who really want to be self-help authors. And I'm like, why? Why? That's your dream? Why? Like, for me, I mean, I fell into self-help really by accident. Because what I was trying to do was be an artist. And what I happened to find out, and many artists have found this out, uh, you know, W.H. Auden talked about how a poet will always make more money than about talking about making poetry than you will by actually <laughs> making poetry. Yep. Um, and he said that 50, 60 years ago. Um, my, you know, my thing was, it was like, look, I know I'm not good enough for anyone to care yet, but I'm learning. And so the idea was, I will share with you what I'm learning 
along the way, and maybe you'll find something interesting in it. And that will make me interesting enough for you to follow along with. And then eventually, maybe I'll make something that you'll love and you'll like. Mm -hmm. That was sort of my game in the beginning. And I'm very obsessed with this idea. I think that like so many great books are accidents. I mean, like you take something like the meditations, like Aurelius's meditations, which I know, you know, Ryan loves so much. And the thing we talk about sometimes is is like, that book's a mistake. Like that's not supposed to be a book that that's like something some dude wrote down for himself. It's not, you know, it's like, it wasn't supposed to be like a best-selling book or whatever, you know? And I think, I think that way about Steal Like an Artist, like Steal Like an Artist was a collection of blog posts that became a talk that became a book, you know? I mean, there's a, there's a, there's an accidental element to it. And so when I realized it was going to be a self, I just never really thought about self-help until I became a self-help author, which is so weird. But in hindsight, I mean, it's sort of like once I learned I was writing in this genre, then it just became like, well, how can I play with this? And so every book has been like my attempt to sort of play with the genre and specifically to play with the genre of the self-help gift book, which is like Mm -hmm. the kind of thing you would find by the cash register at a paper source or a FedEx Kinko's. (laughs) Um, But, you know, like for me, it's like, look at people who are doing work that you actually... Instead of looking for people who have a message that you really like, I mean, you might want to spend a little bit more time like looking at people who are in the world the way you'd want to be in the world or who are processing the, you know what I mean? Like doing work that you, (laughs) I'm trying to figure out how to like put this, like, I mean, my, my great fear in life is becoming the guy who, if I'm ever able to travel again and I end up on a conference stage again, someone looks at him and says, but what does he do? But what, yeah, does, is this what he does? You know what I mean? Cause it's like, um, I don't know. I just think there's something about the reluctant teacher. I mean, there's something about the Zen master who the guy shows up. There's a great story that John Cage tells in silences. A guy goes out to the woods, find a Zen master. And the Zen master is on his porch, sweeping leaves. And the guy says, Zen master, Zen master, teach me, teach me, please. I've come all the way out to the middle of the woods here. And I'm asking you, like, please teach me. Zen master ignores him. So he goes off for a while, makes a campfire, comes back next day. Zen master, please teach me. I'll do anything. I'll be anything. I'll do, you know, whatever. Zen master just ignores him, keeps raking leaves. Same thing happens. It goes up, builds a campfire, comes back next day. Zen master, for the last, please, I'm begging you, teach me. You know, just please teach me your secret. Zen master ignores him, keeps, you know, breaking leaves or whatever. Finally, the guy says, screw this. Screw this. This is terrible. Goes off back into the world, does something else, builds a house. And one day, he's out on his front porch and he's raking leaves. And it hits him like a ton of bricks. He runs back into the woods and he finds the Zen master who's still raking leaves. He says, Zen master, thank you. And that's the parable. <laughs> that's it. That's yeah. it, man. Like, and, and 
and I think some people would be like, what? You know, I mean, if an, uh, your average American hears that, it's like, what? <laughs> you know, but like everything in there is in there to be in the world doing the work <laughs> and to just to just be there doing it in a sense is a form of teaching. What more teaching do you need? He's right there. He's, he's right there in front of you. He's doing the work, you know? And I mean, every parable, I mean, part of the thing with parables is that they teach, you know, it's, it's very dependent on the hearable of the parable to understand what's going on. But for me, it's just like, I love a reluctant teacher. I, I want people to stop. And in fact, I love that people read my books, but I want them to remember when they're reading my books, that my books come they don't come out of the urge to teach. They come out of the urge to share. They come out of the urge to learn something and to share what I've learned, not out of the sense of wanting to be a guru or a teacher or a leader. They come out of, these are things I've learned. I'm writing them down for myself. Maybe you'll find something interesting in them. And I try now at every talk I give to tell people that, to say, look, I'm trying to remain a student. I hope you've learned something here today, but I am learning too. And this is my way of learning. Writing books is my way of learning. Um, and you can make anyone a teacher. Uh, you can make dead people your teachers. The great thing about dead people is they can't refuse you as a student. You know, <laughs> they, they left everything they know in their work. You can learn from that. You don't need a teacher. What you need is to become a student. Hmm. I love that. Yeah, it's funny because I think even the introduction to the book that I'm writing, I basically, you know, said, I want you to read this with skepticism and above all things, consider the possibility that every single word I've written here is absolute and utter bullshit. <laughs> yeah, that's always a good it's always a good strategy to read with a sense of, of skepticism. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, this, <laughs> well, geez, is, this, this went well, around. I mean, yeah, no, I mean, I, I love conversations like this because <laughs> you packed it with so many brilliant insights and nuggets. Uh, so I want to finish with my final question, uh, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Uh, you know, I'm I'm really starting to uh I I I play all the time with with the idea of I, I I wrestle so much with authenticity, this kind of this notion of authenticity, because it seems to me so worthless in art and 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 in other realms too, but there is something that I think makes someone unmistakable, which is really being yourself really. And I know that's so cliched, like be yourself, like what? But I feel like there's a way when you put on a mask that you're more like who you are than when you're naked. There, there are costumes you can put on where you're more of yourself. And if, you know, uh, we've learned anything from modern culture, it's that we should let people try on, you know, I love drag. You know, I love, I love what RuPaul says about drag. She says, you know, um, he's, uh, you know, RuPaul says, uh, you know, we're, we're all born naked. 
and the rest is drag. Uh, and I just think what makes someone unmistakable is just, you get the feeling that they've sort of self-realized that they're sort of like, this is who they, it's sort of a pure essence, I guess, is what I'm looking for in art. I'm sort of looking for like someone who it seems like they figure out how to fire on all cylinders, you know, to really, to take all the pieces of themselves and kind of bring it all together into something unique, you know, like they're not, they're not denying any part of themselves. You know, they're using the whole deal. That seems unmistakable to me. Mm. Amazing. Uh, Well, (laughs) I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, sharing your story and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, um, your books and everything else you're up to? Um, you know, I'm old fashioned. Uh, just go to austincleon.com. Um, and my website is kind of the portal. It's still the portal. It's, it's the thing that's the most up to date. It's the thing I pour myself into every day. Um, I would encourage anyone who enjoyed this conversation to, um, if you can stand the sound of my voice, uh, there's a new audio book that has all three of my books bunched together in a, somewhat affordable package and i would recommend those and then but the favorite thing i do online is um i have a weekly newsletter that's free and uh it is my favorite thing i do online and it's very easy to sign up for it and then unsubscribe if you don't like it (laughs) so austincleon.com awesome and for everybody listening we will wrap the show with that Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.